It's great seeing familiar faces. It's good seeing some new faces. It was six years ago uh, this day. Six years ago, the days of the week lined up with uh, the month of the year. So February 21st, six years ago, was a Sunday morning. I stood up here just after receiving the text message uh, from my dad that uh, sepsis had gone to my sister's brain, which was, we knew that was the one thing that could not happen. So we had come home the Saturday before, February 20th. We thought that Jenny was in the clear and getting better, and then I got the text that the one thing that couldn't happen happened. And I remember preaching that sermon, and I remember the grace that just flowed from this church upon my family, and the next day, February 22nd, is when my sister passed away. I know for a number of you in here, February is a month that uh, you feel, you still feel and experience this thing of death. Uh, So it was six years ago tomorrow that my mom and dad were walking out of the hospital where they had been for almost 18 days when the story that's been shared all over the world, when my mother asked my dad before they walked out the glass windows, "What what do we believe? Like, what is it we believe? And my dad responded with the only four words he could find in his heart is, the tomb is empty. And I remember wrestling that next week of 29 years old, I had been here just over a year and a half, of how I respond to this grief in my own life. Like, what, what kind of preacher am I going to be in the future? What kind of dad am I going to be? Like, how, is this, how am I going to allow this to change me, and how am I going to choose to press into the hope and the, the joy of the resurrection? And I remember I just felt as if God just was speaking over me of, I just want you to be faithful. Just be faithful. I'm grateful we serve a God who has given us victory over sin and victory over death. The Bible describes sin and death as a sting. It's not a lethal sting, but it stings. And I'm grateful to be with people this morning that I can sing songs with and do that last song. That was great, man. It's powerful. That I can take communion with and that we can journey together. So it's good being with you. If you haven't noticed and you look around, we don't have many teenagers in the house today. We have about 150 people from this church, maybe 130, who were out at Winterfest. So pray for them this weekend. Pray for their safe travel home. I know Mark and Stephanie Taylor mentioned the clothing sale earlier, and I just want to ask you to be praying over Leanne Ramsey, her team of 15 people, 15 women who will be here a lot this week. And I know there are a number of you who, who serve in other ways, but pray for them. Pray for their health. Uh, pray that God uses this week. Because here's the cool thing. Lee and Ramsey's going to, and these women are going to receive some cards from people who've been touched through this clothing sale. And Leanne, if you're in here, Leanne, I see you back there. I also want you to be able to share with your friends that you have a church who's praying for you all daily this week for good health. And we're going to celebrate those people who respond with some kind of way of how they've been touched. But I also want you and your team to be able to rest in confidence that there are going to be things God does this week that you're never going to hear about. And I want you guys to be okay with that. I'm so grateful for the many ways God is expressing himself and revealing himself in and through us. Uh, before I go any further, Jonathan. Is John, Jonathan was baptized into Christ on Thursday. Jonathan Marrero. <laughs> and, um, man, I, I should have, I, I saw pictures on Facebook because it was so cool. You guys got baptized in your Choose 901 Sycamore View shirts. Uh, just beautiful. And Jonathan, we're so excited for you. Um, 
Let me also share quickly this Wednesday night, Mark Klesik has a class that goes on down a hallway. There are some other offerings, but the men who've been meeting over here in room 100 and the women that my wife has been teaching for a while, we're all going to combine down in room 115, the old Iglesia room where Celebrate Recovery meets. And for the next two months, we're going to have a Wednesday night. It's going to be just a time of singing. And I'm going to walk you through over the next couple of months, I'm going to walk you through the gospel. So beginning this Wednesday night, we'll be down there. Also, if you have not had a chance to fill out a connection card, they're on these tables that are in this room. I'm going to send you there for prayer here in a little while. You'll also find connection cards out at the, the uh, connection, uh, serve kiosk, connection kiosk. Uh, and if you haven't filled one out, please take a time, your time to do that because this is not about indoctrinating you as a member of Sycamore View. It's the leaders of this church who are trying to steward the gift God has given us to create an atmosphere for discipleship in this church. Next Sunday, I may show you the call my youngest, my six-year-old Noah filled out because he may be the most committed person in this church because he, he circled every box under connect and every box under service. So he's a part of every single ministry team, which I don't know how he thinks we're going to get him to all this stuff, all right? The only problem is he also checked every box that he's not committed. So we're going to work through how committed this dude is, all right? But, <clears throat> I'm in a series right now, and you see it on the screen, Sin Exposed. We started this last week, and here's what this series is not, and here's what this series is. What this series is not is an an attempt to try uh, to manipulate you by telling you how bad you are in your sin so that you'll give more money or try to keep in line. What this series is not is sometimes when people come to me, and this is not every person by any means, but sometimes when people come to me and they're like, hey, we want you to talk more about sin. What they really mean is, I want you to talk about sin because I would love to point someone and tap someone on the shoulder and tell them that I hope they heard the sermon you just preached. So it's not that they want to deal with the sin in their own life. It's they want you to talk about sin so someone else can hear what you talked about. Here's what I hope this series accomplishes for us. I want you to see how good our God is of how he has chosen to respond to the sin and the rebellion in the world and the sin and rebellion in your own life. Because God did not have to respond by any other way but just providing death for everyone who has sinned, but he chose not to do that. So the whole story of Scripture as God has provided a way for you to come out of your sin. And I want you to say yes to Jesus every day to wake up and say yes to Jesus, not just to say no to your sin but to choose yes to Jesus. And I want you to know that when our sin is exposed in the presence of God, there is nothing to fear because our God knows exactly what needs to happen with the sin in our lives. So can you go to that next next picture? Uh, Does this look familiar? There have been artists who have painted from this text, from the passage we're studying this morning, maybe more than any other story in Scripture. Luke 15 is an artist's playing field. If you go to that next one, I mean, here's another artist, and I love this one because they threw in a little puppy down there, all right? Because every prodigal son's story needs a little puppy who's so excited that their sibling came home. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15 this morning. I want to give a little context, though, before we jump into the story of the prodigal son. So you'll see it on the screen. Hopefully you have your Bible open in front of you, your phone, whatever that device is. I want you to see the first two verses of Luke 15 because this sets the context for the next three stories Jesus is going to tell. Luke 15, verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners, if you underline in your Bible, underline that. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen. Underline that, to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, and they're saying, this fellow welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. 
So now the table is set, all right, the room is set of who was present and what their motives were. You have tax collectors and sinners who've come into the presence of Jesus to listen to him. This could be a posture of discipleship. This is a position of putting themselves in a place where they're learning from Jesus. So you have sinners and tax collectors who were so attracted to who Jesus was. But in that same gathering, you also have Pharisees and you have people grumbling because they can't believe Jesus is hanging out with certain kind of people. Here's what you notice by this point in the gospel. If you get to this point in Luke, in Luke chapter 15, what you notice is that for some people who had a love for God and they knew Scripture, so Pharisees and religious people, all the power and demonstrations and miracles that Jesus had performed are now diminished because what they notice is who Jesus is hanging out with. All this powerful stuff Jesus has done. He's already raised people from the dead. He fed the masses. He's done all kinds of miracles. But now all of that pales in comparison to now all they see is, this is one who hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. So you're driving down a road and you see someone who needs help and you stop and you're going to help them, but you see an Obama bumper sticker on the car or a Bush bumper sticker or a Trump. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes it's that thing that someone is labeled by that keeps you from even pursuing a relationship with them. Have you ever been locked out of your car or locked out of your house? I was at a gas station one time and a woman came running in and she was like, do you know how to break into a car? I was like, ma'am, I'm a preacher. I don't care. Do you know how to break into a car? I was like, I've seen movies. I don't know. She's like, I lock my keys in my car while it is running. How many of you have done that before? Just a show of hands. Back in high school, my high school uh, was uh, just almost down the street from my house. Most days I would walk to school. I would walk home. And one day after uh, practice, I usually didn't go home until 4.30 or 5 from football practice and working out. And when I got home, usually my mom or dad were there. So I didn't take a house key with me. And I came home this one day and the fire, there were fire trucks out in front of my house. And there were firemen up at the porch and they were knocking on the door, but nobody was home. And I, they said, do you live here? I said, yes. I said, do you, what's going on? And they're like, we don't think it's a fire, but an alarm's going off. And I said, well, I, I keep my window unlocked. You want me to walk in? And they're like, what? I guess so. So I took the screen off and lifted my window and went in thinking I was the hero. And then these guys start grilling me. What kind of son are you? Do you, do you, do you escape your house? And I'm like, dude, have you never seen Saved by the Bell? This is how people walk into, into homes, you know? Like, I mean, full house. This is what we do. You go through windows. Have you ever been locked out of a car or a house is one thing. Have you ever had a feeling in your life of being locked out of a church? And I'm not talking about that the door didn't open. But you walk into a place hoping you feel welcome. It is like people are checking you at the door. You know what I'm saying? It's an awful feeling when people feel like they've been locked out of a church. And what you have with the Pharisees and these religious people in Luke 15 is they are holding on to a kind of faith that is not going to be the future of God. They're holding on to a certain expression of faith that is not the future of God's kingdom that was coming to the world through Jesus. And instead of welcoming sinners, it can sometimes become too easy to check them at the door. And Jesus wasn't drawn to people who were put together. He was drawn to people who were not put together. And for Jesus, whatever it caused some disconnect between a human being and God, he came with this deep desire to shrink that distance. 
Whatever it is that has created this distance, Jesus is pursuing that relationship so that he can shrink the distance so that a human soul can be connected and reconnected to God their Father. So we read in store throughout Scripture of uh, comeback stories. And there are a lot of people in this room who have had comeback stories in your own life. These are the kind of stories that when you see these documentaries, I don't care who you are, you tear up, right? Like comeback stories. I'm talking about, don't, we love these kind of stories of people who've survived cancer or car wrecks or people who uh, have had relationships that have just fallen apart, yet they, they find this, this drive. God encounters them in a way where it's like this comeback in their life. You love when, these happens, uh, when this happens in sports where there's an underdog who's down by 25 points or something and they come back. These are the stories that make the news and that, that go all over social media. We love these stories. And for us in the church, when there's somebody who is far away from God, who encounters the grace of God in a way that they're invited back in, these should be the best stories we have to tell. Because we don't tell stories of a God who waits for you to get well in order to encounter you. What Jesus shows is he comes into our life, and through that encounter, he wants to make us well. So Jesus responds after those two verses. There's the setting. You got tax collectors and sinners listening to Jesus. You got grumblers who are grumbling about who Jesus is hanging out with. And now Jesus tells three stories. All right, the first story is a story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. I got to love the way Jesus does math because I know I butchered some math a few weeks ago in a sermon, all right? And one thing you learn from Jesus is when you do math in front of people, just do tens and hundreds, right? So Jesus throws out math. Hey, there are a hundred sheep and one's lost. 99 are found, all right? So I'm assuming Jesus is pretty good at math, but that's a pretty easy equation for anybody. There's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, one's lost. 99 are, are, are in a safe place. And what the shepherd does is he leaves the 99 to go pursue the one. So in all three stories in Luke 15, there, there are three components in all, all of them. All of them have something that is lost, something that is found, and when something is found, a party is thrown in their honor. Because Jesus' followers should be throwing the best parties that our world has ever seen because nobody has a reason to celebrate more than us, right? I'm talking about wholesome parties, right? I'm talking about righteous parties, but kingdom parties. Something's lost, something's found, there's celebration. It happens in all of them. Could you imagine getting an invitation from a friend, some shepherd who's like, man, I lost the sheep and I went out and I found the sheep and I want to throw a party. Like, is this really a reason to throw a party? But I bet you know those people, and maybe you used to be that person, or you are, that you just get an invitation to any party, and you're like, dude, I am there, right? The shepherd loses the sheep, finds it, they throw a party. Story number two is a woman who loses a coin. doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it's a coin that may be a, a day's wage. Some suggest that maybe it was a coin that she wore around her neck, signifying that she was a married woman, all right? It's a parable, Jesus tells. And in the parable, a woman loses a coin. And she does everything she can. She's tossing over furniture. She's searching until she finds that coin. And when she finds it, she throws a party. Because there's more reason for heaven to rejoice over one sinner who repents and over those who don't need to repent. In the first two stories Jesus tells about a shepherd and a woman who lost a coin, both of them put forth an effort to find what was lost. The shepherd doesn't just wait for the sheep to come home. This woman doesn't just say, oh, you know, one day it'll, it'll appear. They pursue it. They go after it. 
And I think there's a lesson here for the church. As we read these stories, we aren't those who were just called to sit in a building and you wait for lost things and lost people to come and find you. You go to great efforts. There should be like this holy ache inside of us. Like we can't function correctly unless we know we're, we're living within the will of God in a way that we're pursuing those who, who don't have this connection with Jesus. And I know sometimes there are people who think, and I've lived this way in my own life, that I'm a really bad sinner. I've done really bad things. Who am I to try to go and give anything to, to other people? because of the things I've done. Recovering sinners make the very best witnesses to the remarkable grace of God. Those who find themselves in recovery, a true recovering sinner is one who is pursuing a new reality and living in that new reality and want other people to be drawn into that new reality. And then Jesus tells a third story. Starts in verse 11, goes through the rest of chapter 15. And the story begins, and I'm just going to highlight a few things, all right? We're not going to read this whole thing. Hopefully, you've read the story before. If not, you will be blown away when you go home and read this. It's a dad who has two sons. And the youngest son comes to him and is like, Dad, give me my inheritance. Which is something you really only get when your dad dies, right? So in a way, the younger son is saying, Dude, I just wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. And I bet you've read that story before, and you probably you've thought, well, dude, if I was a dad, I just wouldn't give it to him. This dad gives it to him. Not just to him. The dad goes ahead and divides it. The dad gives half to the younger son, and he goes ahead and gives half to the older son as well. In your Bible, it says a few days go by, and after a few days, that younger son goes out where he's going to, I don't know, whatever the party city is, right? Vegas, Milan, I don't know, wherever you go, right? He goes out and he squanders it. And the father sits on the porch and waits. Now, the first two stories Jesus tells, you got a shepherd who is pursuing the sheep. you got a woman who loses a coin. She's going after the coin. And now you have a father who waits. Now, this is a parable. It is a story Jesus tells. you got to be careful when you read parables because as you read parables, we try to make connections of, well, this represents God and this represents us and this represents... And there's truth to that, but... But know that as the Father is described in Luke 15, this is not an exact depiction of who God is. God is not the one who just waits on a porch for sinners to come home. God is moving with His Spirit throughout the world in this very moment, tapping people on the shoulder, convicting hearts. But in this story, as He tells a story, this Father waits. And the younger son goes out and he spent everything. And he loses all his money and all his friends. Because we aren't really sure how all this went down. It's a parable. It's a story. But you know, if you use money to buy friends, when your money's gone, so are your friends, right? And he's left with nothing. And he finds himself hanging out with pigs. Smelling pigs, tasting pigs, hearing pigs. All of his senses is nothing but pigs. So what causes this kind of a turn in life? Because I know I'm preaching in front of people today that you identify with this younger brother. Either where you are right now in your life or you have a story to tell that's very similar to this. Let me throw out a few things that help may make sense of why is it sometimes we choose this kind of path in life. Number one, there are those who are attracted to rebellion. You tell them not to touch a hot stove. They're going to sit there for a moment, and then the moment you aren't looking, they touch the stove. That's an easy example. You tell them, hey, don't mess around with another woman or man before you're married because you don't know the kind of consequences it's going to have. We go ahead and do it. 
there's some kind of attraction to rebellion. Let me just go through these quickly. Number two, there are times where we engage in wild living because we attempt to numb pain in our own life, thinking that as we numb the pain, it'll do away with whatever the loneliness or whatever, whatever it was. Maybe it's a childhood where there's some form of abuse, and if we can numb the pain, we can deal with the symptoms. Number three, and let me touch on this one just for a moment longer, meaninglessness. There are times we engage in wild living because we're searching for meaning or we haven't had meaning and we want to try to find meaning. Douglas John Hall, a Canadian theologian, has spent most of his life thinking about Christianity in North America. And here's what he says. What we fear now as Christians in America, it's different than people years ago. So a thousand years ago, there were a lot of Christians and one of the greatest fears in their life, it was a fear of death because the life expectancy was so young. That if you came down with a cold or pneumonia or the flu, there's a chance you may not live. And he says, you know, it's also not like a hundred years ago where there was a lot of hellfire and brimstone preaching and a lot of preaching about sin and damnation. And there's not that fear either. Here's what he says. What eats away at us is this gnawing suspicion that we may be superfluous, an accidental species with no real purpose on earth. He said, the threat of meaninglessness is our primary motive for repentance, and salvation comes as we discover or rediscover purpose for our lives. And I find some of this to be true. And I hope that Sycamore View is a place that what we want to help do is save people from meaninglessness. Now, we also got a lot of teenagers who aren't here today. And there are going to be those younger people who are going to choose a path of meaninglessness because they've never had meaningfulness modeled for them. And it's not just, I'm not just talking about people in this church. I'm talking about we got a generation coming up in America that if we are not placing a meaningful, adventurous faith in front of their, they're going to take paths of meaninglessness. So if what they see modeled are binge watching on Netflix and yelling at the news yet no adventure and faith in Jesus, they're going to end up choosing paths of meaninglessness. But then there's something else. Louis Giglio, the guy who uh, is the head of um, passion conferences, and he tells a story of his honeymoon. And he said on his honeymoon, he was searching of where he wanted to take his wife, and he saw these pictures of this, this, this island in the Caribbean, and this resort that overlooked the beach, and it was gorgeous. And he's like, that is where I want to take my bride. And they, they got there, and they walked out on the porch, and they looked out, and it wasn't this beautiful picture of the beach. There was a beach, but it was a place where people who had boats that had been wrecked and beaten, like if you've ever been driving down the road and you see a, 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 a junkyard where there are just hundreds and not thousands of cars, that's what this was for boats and ships. And he went and he looked at the picture and he went and talked to the people at the front desk and come to find out they had cropped out all the boats that were broken and damaged and turned over on its side. They had cropped it out to give this picture of a different reality. And what Satan wants to do is to crop out the reality that God wants us to see. So we don't notice the damage that comes with some of the decisions we can make in life. Louis Giglio says this. I think I have this quote up on the screen. He says, it, wasn't that, it isn't that just how the enemy works. 
He causes us to lose sight of the good that's right in front of us and takes us down a road of imagination where we dream of a faraway land filled with everything our hearts desire. The problem is he always crops the disaster out of our escape plans. Like the younger son, he masks the pitfalls and probable outcomes while highlighting the sizzle of the pleasure we're going to experience. Isn't that true? The son in this story wanted freedom, but it was freedom to let him into slavery. And you look in your Bibles in verse 17, especially if you have the NIV, what it says is when he came to his senses. And and I love that because you think about all five of his senses. When he came to his senses to realize I am surrounded by pigs, the decisions I've made in my life have shown me now I am surrounded by pigs, something that gets moving in his heart. If you remember in Romans chapter 1, there are three different times where Paul writes about sin of the flesh And each time it says God gave them over to their desire. It does not say God gave up on them. It says God gave them over because sometimes I think what God does is if you make choice after choice to choose rebellion and sin, sometimes the best thing God can do is just say, well, then go for it. Just get in it. And then the Spirit of God's going to attempt to work in a way to open up eyes and open up a heart to see how good the grace of God is. But here it's this guy just fully immersed in his sin and brokenness, surrounded by pigs. He came to his senses. He goes home. He prepares a speech as he goes home. He's prepared a speech for his father to tell his father, I don't even deserve to be a son. I need, need to be a slave. He prepares a speech, memorized it, comes to his father and says it just how he memorized it. Have you ever done this? You try to memorize a speech? But the next day, you're like, I'm going to walk in. I'm going to tell my boss. I'm going to walk in there. I'm going to say, listen here, bucko. Here's what I have to say to you, right? I, when, I, when I proposed to Casey, my in-laws are here right now, I, I prepared this speech for my father-in-law to ask for a hand in marriage. It was a great speech. I practiced it. And my, my father-in-law is not, Kelly, you're not a scary guy. But I remember standing in the mirror, and I would practice this speech I had memorized. I even worked to get like a Denzel Washington tear to come down the cheek, so... So he can know how much I loved his wife. And it would have been an awesome speech if in the moment I remembered any of it. I forgot the whole thing, all right? This guy prepares a speech for his father and he gives it to him. The dad, I don't even deserve to be your son anymore. I deserve to be a slave. And I want you to see how the father responds. In verse 22, the first thing the father does is he doesn't speak to the son. Have you noticed that before? He doesn't address his son. He speaks to his servants. If I, you go get the calf and kill it, because we need to throw a party. You go get the drinks. You go get the cake pops from Starbucks. You go get, and he's just given all these orders. If I, we've got a party because the lost son has come home. But before the father even speaks to the younger son, he's speaking to his servants about, we've got a party to celebrate. We've got to throw a celebration because the lost has been found. He has come home. The father doesn't begin with, who in the world do you think you are? Do you know what you've put my mom, your mom and me through? Get in your room right now. It's, hey, we got, we got to throw a kingdom celebration. I preached this sermon. One of the first places I was preaching, this was probably 13 years ago. And I preach that when the sinner comes home, we should throw parties. The kingdom of God, you read the New Testament, when people give their life to the Lord or they have a comeback in their life and they come back, you don't see people patting them on the back and wishing them good luck. 
So I preached this sermon, and then the very next week, we had this 19-year-old in our church who was caught up in drugs and alcohol, been living with his girlfriend, got her pregnant, and then God encountered him in a dream one night and opened him up to how his life is in this spiral of destruction. And he came to church that next day, just this broken spirit, crying out for Jesus. And we baptized him, and man, the church is so excited, and the people came up to me, and they're like, you preached to us this morning about throwing parties. Aren't you going to do one? And we, and then we start making assignments and we running down to the store to get a cake and candles and to get a lighter and drinks and food because here was this son who was gone from God who came home. And this is a great place for the story to end. The son has come home. They throw a celebration, right? Roll the credits, <laughs> throw off the fireworks, throw them up, uh, drop the mic. Story should be over the end, but it's not where the story ends. They're throwing the celebration, and then the oldest son is pretty upset about what's happening. He doesn't get it. It doesn't make sense. He's questioning his father of, doesn't my obedience to you, doesn't my faithfulness to you mean anything? You've never thrown a party for me. And the father leaves the party for the son to go out and engage in a conversation with the older brother. And that is where the story ends. It's open-ended. You don't know if the father and older son end up going into the party. You don't, it, you're left with a lot of questions and assumptions. Uh, and I think this is one of the beautiful things in Scripture, too. Is that there are some of our favorite stories that end open-ended because it becomes your story. It becomes our story. Let me show you six things real quick of the actions of the Father. I'm going to go through these quick. You can wait until all six are on the screen. Take a picture, all right? I just want you to notice the actions of the Father in this story. Here's what you know about him. He has two sons. Something else you notice is he granted their request. He granted the younger son's request, and because of that, the older son was also a recipient of the, the inheritance. Number three, when the younger son comes home, the father doesn't wait for him. The father runs to meet his son. Number four, he celebrates the comeback. The comeback dance, whatever it was, all right? The whipping, they, I don't know what they did there, all right? But there's, you, what, what Jesus tells in the story is you could hear music and dancing. It's one thing to hear music. When you can hear dancing, you know it's a pretty big celebration that's going on. So there's a celebration that's going on. Number five. The father leaves the comeback party for his son who was a little confused. And number six, he speaks to the son, and that's where the story ends. And this reveals to us things about the heart of God. What you see in this story is that the father in the parable Jesus tells mimics the reality of heaven. And to be faithful followers of Jesus, we mimic the reality that we know is ours. And deep down, what this father desired for both of his sons was obedience to the father, not just to keep them in line, but to protect them from the evil one and to strengthen their hearts. Remember last week I told you that sin is not just a violation of rules, it's the violation of a relationship. And I think the reason this story is left open-ended, much like the rich young ruler or like Zacchaeus or like the story of Jonah, where it just ends so abruptly, you find yourself turning the page like, there's got to be more to the story. One of the reasons that happens is, the way Scripture works is, it's not just about reading Scripture saying, wow to them, it is now you're invited into the story, and there are choices to be made. And one thing you see from Jesus is, 
the choice he's inviting people to make is not just the choice about an eternal destination. The choice he's inviting people to make is about a relationship with their father. Because this is one of my concerns about Christianity in America is I think you have a lot of people making decisions about an eternal destination, but they don't want to make a decision to follow Jesus with all their life. You ask some people, do you want to go to heaven? The response is yes. Do you want to follow Jesus with all you are? Kind of, maybe, maybe one day. And I bet there's someone in here is could say today, you know what, I, I need a comeback in my life. I want to come back. And we lift our hands to God today because we know God extends a hand to us. And I'm asking this God who is so generous and dispensing grace to lift you up above the cloud of darkness that surrounds you or above that ache, that circumstantial ache in your life so that you can see this God who runs to us and who invites us to run to Him. Jesus has accomplished more than we could ever ask or imagine, and we are here as the church, not just to bandage wounds and to wish people luck in life, but to send us out as people together who run into the arms of our Father, because it's the safest place to be. So will you bow your heads with me this morning? Will you close your eyes? For those who are praying in places today, will you get in those places? to receive people for prayer. And as our eyes are closed and heads are bowed, I want want you to begin with a prayer to God, just silently where you are, about yourself. Before you pray for someone else to experience God in a way where they come to their senses, ask, what is it, God, you want me to take from this day? What is it you want me to take from this story? And just ask God to reveal that to you. Let me ask you in prayer with heads bowed and eyes still closed. Can you think of one person in your life that you need to lay before the throne room of God and ask for God to help them come to their senses today? And we faithfully just lay them there. And God, I pray that now in this moment that you will paint a picture in the minds of my friends in this room, that any moment in our lives where we make a turn to you, that you don't remove yourself or go further away, but just like this father in Luke 15, you are running to us. And I pray that we can have this this holy interaction with you today where we see you pursuing us. And in response, we just want to pursue you and run to you. And God, for the people in this room who feel too weak to run or too weak to move, will you lift them up and provide them strength that you provided people with all throughout Scripture to give them strength they didn't even know they have so that now that this song can be a song we sing with all of our hearts and all of our lives, that we are running into the arms of our Father. So we sing this for ourselves and we sing this for others. In the name of Jesus, amen. We have leaders people here to receive you for prayer. We have women ready to receive women. We have shepherds ready to receive you. If there's someone here who's never given a life to Jesus before, you've never confessed him as Lord or been baptized into Christ, Brian's up here to my right to receive you. And it's not just a moment we want to experience with you. It's a, it's a celebration we want to experience with you as well. Can we stand together? Let's sing these songs.
You are good, you are good when there's...